Paratanatopal, who is currently lying in Mariah, Judea, Judea. He was 37 years old, diagnosed with, he got his results back from his cancer two weeks ago, started oncology on Monday, and passed away again <laughs> on Friday night. He has four children, the youngest is one and a half, the eldest is, the eldest is 16, <coughs> and he leaves behind his Nat, who was his one partner, lived in high school, and went together ever since. Sitting there last night, which is the reason that my father and I were there till late last night, so I said, I'll take care of church this morning, you sleep in. So that's what they're doing. That was a three hour, three hour, four thirty, three hour series of speeches last night. Uh, and one of the tragedies, I got a lot of tummy, but it was a tragedy to see a young person, that is, he was pretty young, uh, who has so much potential to be a leader for the future. So I just wanted to start by paying testament to, to him, to our cousin, and to his family at this sad time. Now, my cousin uh, Carlton Bidwa, who's still healthy and hale, uh, often tells a story about his father. So in the mid-1980s, some of you will remember, there was a significant rise in street kids uh, in New Zealand, in Aotearoa. And whilst we were not a large city at that time, Tauranga was by no means immune uh, from that phenomenon. Now, Carlton's family homestead is 100 metres or so from our Marae, Otuta. And at that time, we never ever locked the door into our meeting, meeting house, to our family. Anyway, one evening, Carlton was at home with his father and family, and they could see lights flashing inside the meeting house just across the field. So the side Takurua. So Carlton and his father went across the field to investigate what was going on inside the meeting house. And what they found when they got there was a rather motley group of young people setting up mattresses for the night inside the meeting house. Of course, faced with a stern call and his uh, teenage son, these young people all froze. And nothing was said for some minutes. And then Carlton's father stated simply and gruffly, make sure you tidy up when you leave. And then they both left and went home. And the next day when they went back to the Marae, back to the Whanidui, of course the meeting house was spick and span, clean and tidy, everything packed away. Now you're probably aware that if there is no one here in our church during the day at St George's, it is common practice to lock the doors. And that seems sensible enough. There's expensive equipment on the walls, around the, around the area here, in the communal spaces, and more than that, of course, we've had fires in the past uh, in these buildings. Furthermore, there's probably insurance issues as well that we'd need to consider. So perhaps you might be slightly uncomfortable about where I might be going with this, but what I'm hopeful is that within each of you there's a little corner where the idealist and the romantic 
still reigns supreme. Because what if God called to a man or a woman who was walking past this church to come to him and they came to Lockport? Now, in the Diocese of London, their advice on locking doors in churches starts with this little pill. A locked door is a universal symbol of exclusion, while an open church expresses God's welcome, His presence, His creativity, His justice, His healing, and His forgiveness. I was also surprised to find that Ecclesiastical Insurance, which is the main provider of insurance to churches in England, recommends an open door policy for churches. And the reason these hippies recommend an open door policy is because in actuality it has been shown to reduce vandalism, reduce graffiti, reduce damage, reduce theft from churches. And their suggestion is that it does so because an open church improves relationships with the local community and it encourages a sense of ownership of people around the church for that building and for its people. Brothers and sisters, we live in an era of abundance that is unparalleled in human history. We read about Solomon, we read about David. They lived in abject poverty compared with our society today. We also live in a time when that abundance is becoming more and more concentrated in the hands of a few people. Brothers and sisters, if you own your own home, if you receive a government pension and also have a little nest egg that you can use as well, if you have more than one property, if you can afford to reside in a retirement village, if you're not worrying about where your next meal is coming from, if you are sure that when you leave here today, get in your car, you have enough petrol to go and do a few jobs and get home, if you're planning on going out for a cup of tea with some friends this week, and depending on behaviour, if you're thinking about buying presents for your children or grandchildren for their birthdays or for Christmas, and I want it to be clear that I and you, we are the few. We are the few who live in an unimaginable abundance. In 2 Corinthians today, chapter 8, we heard this. For if the eagerness was there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has. Not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may be for your need, in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. My wife Jo and I and our children, we lived in Maryland 13 years. 
It was not uncommon for acquaintances from outside of our community, using quite indirect and sometimes obtuse language, to show sympathy to Joe and I for the crime and violence that we must live with every day of our lives. I want to be clear, Joe and I never feared for our safety on any single day that we lived in the community of Mary Park. Indeed, it was widely known in our community that our back door was always unlocked and always open. The reason for this was if someone was picking up something and we went home, we'd tell them to go and find the back door. If I forgot to turn the slow cooker on, I would ring one of my young people and I'd tell them to go around to my house, go on the back door and turn my slow cooker on. Sometimes, if we're at the community centre, we needed more food, you know, bread or milk, whatever it was, then I'd grab one of our young people and tell them to go around to our house, the back door's open, get more milk and bread. So we didn't just have it open, but it was known that the back door was open. So, I was robbed once, but not from inside the house. We arrived home one afternoon, and my bike had been stolen off the front deck. I have to admit, I was pretty gutted and I was pretty angry. And I did actually pick up my phone to ring the police, but then I did put it down again. And I have to think, there's that still small voice, and in this instance, it told me to go for a drive. So I did. I drove around Maryvale streets. Probably a few might have been steam coming out of the windows. And in Hampton Terrace, I saw a 12-year-old boy riding my bike on one wheel up and down Hampton Terrace. So I stopped and I said to him, give me my swear word starting with F bike back now. <laughs> to which he replied, Gee, mister, there's no need to swear. <laughs> said, I'll do more than swear if that bike is not in the back of my car in one minute. And he said, how do I know it's your bike? And I went, what? He goes, how do I know it's yours? You might be trying to steal it. <laughs> so at that point, I took a deep breath, and I volunteered to unlock the bike lock that was attached to the bar of the bike. He agreed that would suffice as sufficient proof that I owned the bike. So I took the bike lock off and I got my bike back. And it cost me a mere $300 to repair the front wheel that he banged up and down on the path as he was riding around here in the terrace. What I did say to him as I left was if he wanted a bike, he only had to come and ask. Literally the next day, after I got back from a meeting or something, he and his colleagues was sitting on my front deck. And he goes, are you Graham? And I said, I am Graham. He said, oh, I thought so. I saw your name on the fridge when I was stealing your bike. And he goes, can I have $10? <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't have $10. Then he thought about it and he goes, can I have $1? I'm like, no, you can't have a dollar, you can have a glass of water, which he declined. And I said, have you come around for your bike? And he was quiet, and he thought I was joking. But then he said, yes. And so I went around the shed and I gave him my old mountain bike out of the shed. Wasn't in great nick. The tires were pretty flat. 
probably a little rusty and a lot of cold wind But it was a bike. So he didn't look disappointed because he was aware there was this newly repaired bike sitting at the front deck that he just had the day before. But eventually he took it in his stride and then he came around two days later with a very well prepared, well repaired rather, mountain bike. So he got the bike all fixed up. And I said to him, who repaired your bike? He answered, well, Mr. we steal quite a few bikes, so we set up a workshop to fix them up. <laughs> They've done a really good job. As an addendum to this story, the next week, the car from this bike got stolen off my front deck. I started locking them up there, um, locking the bikes to the chain. Uh, but five hours later, the bike came back, and it was brought back by these boys. They said, oh, we saw one of our bros had stolen the boy's bike, but you know you can't steal bikes off that deck. So they brought the bike back. <laughs> so again, I come back to this. I have never feared. Joe has never feared. My children have never feared living in our little community. And the reason is because we were always in community without people. So it was a church that locks its doors in community with those who live around it? Or are we more likely to fear our community for what they might do if they broke through those locks? Do we fear the intentions of those who might come through these doors? In our Gospel reading today, from Mark, we heard this. Now there was a woman who was suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. She was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus, who came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately, her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you? How can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. <clears throat> now there was a man who had been without a home for two years. He had endured much under many case managers, and he had spent all that he had. And he was not better, but rather he grew worse. Now there was a woman who had suffered physical and sexual violence from her partner for 10 years. She had endured much through his hands and had asked all of her father for help. But she was no better, but rather grew worse. Now there was a child who had been contemplating suicide after suffering bullying in school for five years. She had endured much from many other children and dismissive comments from her parents and her teachers. And life was no better, 